Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Biblical Frame, once again, where we are evaluating and taking a look at current events from a biblical theological perspective. My name is Ed Gerber, and I'm hosting our chat today, which is going to cover the topic of technology. And I'll allow those who are here to uh, introduce themselves so you have a sense of who's around the table. Hi, Ed. It's Ivan De Silva. This is Jan Zimmerman from Regent College. Stephen Dunning from Nowhere. And my name is Greg Gerber. And my name is Curtis Malifsa. Well, great to have all of you here. It's good to be together again. It's been several weeks, and uh, we have got, I think, more content with this topic than we will possibly be able to cover in the course of 45 minutes to an hour, depending on how much time we have here. But uh, I thought that I would start with a little piece that I've prepared, that I prepared this morning, kind of trying to give a primer or a primer, as some like to call it, on the biblical theological grounds, or at least some of them, for thinking about technology. So I'm going to offer some reflections uh, out of the book of Genesis, and then out of the book of Exodus. So bear with me, and by the way, listener, if if you find this a bit heavy or a bit boring, don't worry, we're going to get into a lot of awfully practical stuff very shortly. So stay with us, or just skip this portion. So I take it first to definition. I take it that technology is, in a proper sense, the study of technique or craft or method. Um, That is to say of how one goes about something. The technological society then, the society in which we're a part in a big way, is one that is very much preoccupied with how things are done, and in particular, in deriving ways and means of being more efficient, of producing more and better goods, perhaps in less and less time, with more and more powerful equipment. Now, Scripture, as far as I can tell, does not say that technology in and of itself is either good or bad. Technology, or the techniques that we develop to get things done, are in and of themselves neutral. So, for example, writing is in and of itself neither good nor bad. The invention of the printing press was, in and of itself, neither good nor bad. The invention of architecture and the engineering that enabled the ancient Egyptians to build the pyramids and that enabled the French to build the Eiffel Tower are, in and of themselves, neither good nor bad. And also, let me add, the same is true for things that are prevalent today and have come about in recent history. Telephones, computers, cell phones, tractors, airplanes— And perhaps, although our Catholic friends may disagree, perhaps even the pill today, which was a technological revolution. All of these techniques, these technologies in and of themselves, I reiterate, are neither good nor bad. Now, what makes them good or bad, as far as I can tell from Scripture, is the end to which they are used. We can judge technologies, in other words, in view of the purposes for which they are or have been put. And let me substantiate this by giving just two illustrations here from Scripture, depending on insights from the French sociologist Jacques Ellul first, and then from the Jewish medical doctor and classicist, and in my opinion, all-around polymath, Leon Cass, secondly. So first, Jacques Ellul. Jacques Ellul wrote a penetrating book on technology— called The Technological Society, or at least that was its English title. He also wrote a book titled The Meaning of the City. 
Elul points out in this book that while the final destiny of history, according to scripture, is joyously and jubilantly our entrance into the fully perfected and architecturally spectacular and glorious city of God, a technological masterpiece, which will encompass the whole world, even still, despite this final end, city building itself as a technology that paves the pathway for the development of other technologies, is not always looked at favorably in Scripture. For example, Cain is Scripture's first city builder. But the question is, and here I go back to my thesis that we must judge technology on the purposes for which it is used, the question is, why? Why does Cain go off to build a city? Well, he does so, the text of Genesis seems to indicate, in order to escape from God to find life on his own, without God. In fact, to escape the grace of God. God, as you may remember, as a means of grace, says Cain, after he murders his brother Abel, must become a restless wanderer on the earth. So Cain will learn to depend on God for his security and sustenance and well-being for his life, which comes from God and will return to God. But what does Cain do? Well, Cain goes off immediately in, the text tells us, an eastward direction, which is a symbol of life, of the rising sun, which is to say Cain goes off to establish life, utopia, on his own terms. And how? Well, it's by the technological means of building a city. That's right. Do not miss it. Cain will build a city because Cain believes that a city will give him safety and security without God. Cain builds a city because he believes that it will enable him to gain glory without God, which is why he names the city after his oldest son, Enoch. Cain builds a city because it is in the city where the technologies of animal husbandry and music and the arts and tool making can flourish through his grandchildren and can therefore provide him with all his appetite of needs for food, for beauty, for creativity, and again, all without God. Notice that Cain's son Lamech will even develop and embrace a primitive reproductive technology inside the walls of the city. Not a fertility pill, but polygamy, more than one wife, in order to more quickly and efficiently build up his line, and therefore, don't miss it, to build up and the workforce and army needed to sustain the city. So what do we see in the story of Cain? To summarize, I believe that we see that technology is used in a way that is bad, not because building and the arts and animal husbandry are themselves bad, but because here we have technologies and techniques used to a bad end, the worst end, in fact, used in the service of replacing God. But in other words, there are technologies that are bad, friends, because they are technologies used to aid humans in maintaining a deadly delusion that there is no God, or even if there is a God, that we humans do not need him to live a flourishing life. And intriguingly, let me just note parenthetically that when God sends Abram out to bless the world, he sends him out not first to build a city, that will come later, but he sends him out first as a wanderer who will learn to depend on God, as Abram does learn to do. Second example, and very briefly, Leon Cass, in his new book, The Founding of God's Nation, reading Exodus, points out a stunning irony the text draws out about Egypt's technological prowess. And make no mistake, Egypt has got prowess technologically, or at least they seem to have. Genesis ends with their technological advances over death, 
mummification. Exodus begins with their technological advances over life, slavery of the lives over a whole people, and note it in order to build a city for Pharaoh. But anyways, there is then more technological prowess with the plagues, and very, very interestingly, because as we are told, by their magic arts, which is to say their magic techniques, the Egyptian sorcerers are able to do exactly what God through Moses can do. They can turn water into blood, as we are told in the text. They can multiply the frogs on the earth, as we are told in the text. However, and this is the stunning irony of the first two plagues that Cass points out. Although the Egyptian technicians can, by their technological arts, make things happen, bringing something into the world, namely chaos, that is blood and a plague of frogs, they cannot, the text shows, undo what they've done. The hell they unleash with their technological means, they cannot get on a leash. The genie they rub out of the lamp, we might say, they cannot get back into the lamp. It's a jaw drop. It's a stunning point. And I take it as a truism. When human beings use technologies in ways that are unaided by the power and wisdom of God, it will end in chaos, in uncreation. We will arrive at a place where what we've managed to bring about into the world, we are not able to reverse. Our technology will then bring about hell on earth, not the heaven we think it will, the utopia we're seeking. The myth of progress, if you will, flying on the promise of new technologies will be shown for what it is, just that, a myth. And if you need examples, think about our reproductive technology today. We are able by our magic arts, by techniques with medical tools to terminate a baby in the womb, but we are not able to bring that life back from the dead. We are able by our magic arts, by our technologies today to prevent life from happening with the invention of the pill and our popping of it but we cannot gain back our years of fertility with the snap of our fingers when we stop taking the pill. And in the same way, we can dynamite a mountainside with the power of our technologies, but we cannot put that same mountainside and all the animals who once lived there back together again. In sum, as I look at what Scripture says about technology, and as I look at the way it drives us to be discerning, I believe Scripture says this, technology in and of itself is neither good nor bad, it is a tool. But to what end? If to God's ends, then good. But if not, then bad. Well, thanks, Ed. That was great. Um, I'm just going to push back a little bit on the idea that technology is neutral. Um, so I'm just to, to let you all know, I'm probably going to be the, uh, the, the, the technophobe in the, in the round, <laughs> or the technocritic. Um, I do appreciate, as we're doing a... Um, you know, this podcast, the technology is a fantastic thing in many ways. We've gained lots of stuff, but I don't think it is neutral. Um, and uh, you yourself, I think, have just given us an example of that, or a couple even. And one is the city. If people move into the city, immediately there's a different form of life, like from a nomadic life, right? Mm-hmm. So the city itself is an instrument in a way, so, and technology is instruments, but the quality of the instrument will often shape, and to varying degrees our own behavior and our way of perception. And I think we need to take that into account when we talk especially about modern uh, computing technologies. And one of my problems is that I think, and we can talk about this more at length if you want uh, later, 
that our current culture is really in the grip of what, what I call like a technological vision of a certain kind. Mm -hmm. We view all of reality and all of life in a kind of functionalist, um, through a functionalist lens, mm -hmm. including human life. Um, but my main point is simply to say that, yes, it may be an instrument, and of course our moral disposition matters and how we use technology, but there's something intrinsic to technologies uh, in their nature um, that shape our behavior too, and we have to be aware of that. And the city is one, just one primitive example. Another one is um, you talked about uh, how technology runs away you know, in, in, mm -hmm. uh, and gets out of control. Yes. But we're also prone to using technologies that may be runaway technologies, like by their nature, um, because they, they, they are something that a process we set in motion that will continue. Right? And so I'm thinking here, for instance, of the, the, uh, the things that people are now becoming more and more aware of, which is the, uh, the COVID vaccines that we use. So we've used an mRNA technology that we're now finding out keeps working. You, get, you inject this stuff and it keeps turning us into a um, spike protein factory. And we now know this, this process lasts on and on. Nobody actually knows where the off switch is. So that means we've used... Sure, our moral disposition plays a role, but we've also employed a technology whose power we can't even estimate. We don't even know about the long-term consequences. And so that, too, is the nature of the beast that we have to be aware of. Um, so that's my that's the, the one sort of pushback. Well, and so the way I would um, fit that into with what I said is that um, when we use technology unaided by the wisdom of God, and then it becomes uh, something that can become self-perpetuatingly bad. And perhaps there's a lack of wisdom in the way that we use the COVID vaccines or something. Um, but I don't know that this disqualifies the thesis that technology in and of itself, uh, per se, is um, neither good nor bad. But I'd, we could press into that a little bit more. But certainly the life that it takes on can become bad. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a matter of definition. Good and bad are moral terms. Yes. Right? So, but I think technology itself, in a non-moral sense, has, um, has a fabric, has a texture, has a mechanisms that we need to be aware of. Yeah. Right? So, and they change the way that we engage the world. Yes. And that can be, going back to moral, that can be, uh, in some sense, a bad way or a worse way than something else. So this is given the conditions of the world presently... Um, technology can go awry. But would we say that the new heavens and new earth is going to be bereft of technology? My own thinking is that it certainly will not be bereft of technology, but it will be used for sagacious and good ends, for the good, the true, and the beautiful, without remainder. Yeah, I would, I would want to say that only those technologies that will work in such a way will remain. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Please jump in, anybody. We're gonna... I was just thinking that... Um, I, too, would kind of push back on the idea that it's neutral. I agree with what you're saying, <clears throat> largely. But if we think about, for example, the invention of the printing press, uh, I'm sure that the, that, the, that the ends towards which that invention were pointed was distribution of the Word of God, other kinds of things like that, right, to increase literacy. But in the process, it also destroyed our oral memories. And that people before the printing press could had this phenomenal oral memory, who thought that when they brought the printing press that that would be one of the effects? It's like, to a man with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Hammers have a disposition to want to bang things. I would say the same thing is true of the car. If you think about the invention of, um, let's say, mass production of cars, who would have thought that it would shape 
our cities, the way that the, you know, the conurbations would develop. That was in, it was embedded in the idea of the car, but no one could anticipate that. And whether you consider it neutral or not, but it seems to me that technologies come with hidden uh, biases. Let's just put it that way. I, so that's the, the sense in which I don't consider them neutral. But, and I'm not, like Jens, I'm not putting a moral right. evaluation on that. But I do think that that's one of the most surprising things is how we, I mean, who would have thought that when we invented the iPhone or the smartphone that we were going to produce a generation of people with bad <clears> necks <throat> or a tendency to fall into, you know, open or holes. Or depression and suicidal <laughs> ideation among exactly, young people. Right. Yes. So it's like it, it, the intention of the development of a technology often has nothing to do with the results of it, I think. Yeah. But anyway. Yeah, so I would just add to that. So, I mean, I, I take some of this criticism from, uh, from Heidegger's view of technology, right? And he's not a technophobe. He's not against technology. What he's saying is we need to understand the essence of the technologies that we use and how it changes our way of being. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think it just needs to be aware I'd, of that, right? I think fair enough. Yeah. I agree. Yeah, I, I would just add, I mean, this is a very interesting conversation, and it it's always difficult because we don't have appropriate taxonomies for when we discuss technology. So are we talking about how a technology is construed or created based on its perceived advantages that it employs? Now, if we think about computer technology or even a car, as per mm-hmm. the examples, there are reasons it came into being. And the technology itself is there to engage or to help in one particular function. But then, of course, people find ways to Mm. move away from that particular function that it was originally created for. And so then we talk about, well, you know, a car is technology. It helps me get from A to B and it might help me get, you know, if I buy a Porsche, it's going to help me get from A to B a little bit faster with a few more costs and and these sorts of things. But what does the technology do for us, I think, is is the question um, that we have to wrestle with. How was it intended? And then when we're talking about the neutrality or the non-neutrality of a technology, is that inherent to the technology or is that inherent to a human condition? Right. And, and there's a, a real tension there. We know that when we're talking about communication technologies, for example, communication occurs over some medium. And the medium, absolutely, as Marshall McLuhan mm-hmm, says, mm-hmm. is the message. If we look at something on a 2D a newspaper type interface versus something that's multimedia versus this podcast audio, our ability to interpret changes as a result of the medium. It's really important. So it's interesting because we're talking about so many tenets of technology with one word without often having the appropriate taxonomies or the categories. So I'm curious, how would we qualify that or um, which aspect of technology would we consider as most instrumental or important or I'll just add to that um, in, in terms of a question. Neil Postman wrote mm. some good stuff on this. He wrote, he wrote a book called Technopoly. Mm-hmm. One of the things he claims is that every new technology, particularly one that's transformative, is a Faustian bargain. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It presents certain advantages, but what you don't understand are the disadvantages, which will unfold over time. So it's a Faustian bargain. You can see the, that's what you were saying, you yeah. can see the advantages, they, they appear immediate. What you can't see is what it's going to cost you. That's right. um, a, so. a Faustian bargain that becomes a Procrustean bed. Because <laughs> <laughs> it can lock you down. The question, <clears throat> I think the question of uh, is it uh, neutral or whatnot, maybe it should be nuanced in the bigger context of can fallen, corrupted human nature create anything that is truly neutral? That would be an interesting question to pursue because the, uh, the creators of technology are not neutral. Right. Uh, and certainly they're not, they're not biased in the good side either. They are, they are fallen. We are depraved in our humanity. I mean, if you take the reformed understanding of these things. And so is it possible for a humanity that has been corrupted by the effects of sin to create something that is truly neutral? Right. So that's one thing I would want to um, put on the table. The other thing is, getting back to Genesis, uh, I was also thinking about this. If you look at the, especially the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which are so formative, for the rest of the Bible. <clears throat> and you look at the, um, the four sin uh, accounts that are in those first chapters, all of them in some way or another are about humans trying to reach beyond their God-given limitations to become something more. Uh, in fact, to become like God. <clears throat> I mean, that is basically the raw a motivation behind the Mm -hmm. reaching to the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, that uh, you will be like God. And even with the the Cain story, which is a little bit more muted in this area, but uh, through through building the city and technology, trying to achieve something that uh, will extend his mortality and so on and so forth. Then with that strange story of um, the sons of God and uh, daughters of men, which... I understand in a sort of genetic manipulation, early form of genetic manipulation, in order to create this Nephilim, which are this race of giants that can uh, form the uh, uh, ancient form of a super army, I guess. And then finally, interestingly, the use of technology in the, in the Tower of Babel yeah. story, because there are two technological advances that they had there. And that was the, um, they were finally able to build bricks Mud, yeah. and then yeah. use uh, tar for mortar, <coughs> which enabled them to build this uh, superstructure mm-hmm. because before that they'd have to use rocks and those are you know, shaped variously and you'd never be able to get a perfect, symmetrical, strong uh, structure. But now they have bricks which are exactly symmetrical and they can glue them together with tar. And so they say, well, let's reach up to the heavens. And so it seems like human beings are always reaching beyond, in fact, to become godlike and Technology, I think, is what they believe will give them that yes. that ability. And so, in some way or another, all of our technology uh, is an attempt to become godlike. And I think now, today, jumping into today with the mRNA and all this kind of stuff, it is it is almost blatantly mm. made clear that we want to we want to extend um, beyond our humanity to actually mold together machines and humans so that we become this transhuman super type of human. I mean, the government of Canada has a website with the official government of Canada logo that promotes transhumanism, the, uh, the, the joining of um, 
uh, machine technology and humanity in order to extend our reach. And God seems to be saying, no, that is not going to work. You have to live within the bounds I've created for you. That is where you find a true humanity, and that is where you find your full potential. And his um, view is that you don't make a better human through technology. You make a better human through him and submission to God's will and God's word. So I'll I'll just throw those ideas out there. That's great. Um, yeah, so I, I broadly agree with all of that. Um, to be a little bit more particular, so what kind of gods will we be? You, know, you just touched on, on the last uh, thing, you know. So, And this is a discussion that often comes up with Christian transhumanists who, who believe that technology is the means by which we might reach the, you know, the, the, the ultimate state that, um, you know, I would say we only reach by participation in Christ being renewed in the in the last right. resurrection, right? Transformed into the image of God in a fully body-soul kind of way. But uh, Christian transhumanists think that technology is going to do this. God has actually That's given right. us technology, so thereby we will enhance ourselves into that state. Um, and now back to the nature of technology. So what kind of gods would that be if that actually worked? It would be the god of zero and ones, right? It would be the god of this very narrow uh, life experience, which, I mean, we, we constructed computers on the basis of principles that are truly extant in reality, but it's an objective view of things, uh, a mechanistic view of things, a functional view of things that is only a minor part of how we experience life. We've taken that, constructed a, a powerful technology on it, um, and, and then as what was said earlier, then, then this takes off and we put it to all kinds of uses, but those uses will always be defined by the very nature of that technology, of that particular tiny little... Yeah. Right, laser-like um, and therefore reductive. So, are you saying aspect. they have embedded within themselves a certain yes. telos? Yes, yes. But you can't discover it right away. You can't because right. we lack the wisdom. It reveals itself over time. It's, and then, and then, yeah. as it reveals itself over time. So, let's take um, you know what what Greg said earlier. Uh, computer technology, in some sense, is just employed to be more efficient. But as you said at, in, the, at the beginning, even that drive for efficiency is already a particular way of engaging the world, yes. right? Now you get um, Facebook, somebody who uses that already in era technology to construct on it a very manipulative, psychologically debased, um, mm-hmm. appealing to our most primitive instincts type of enticement. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it gets narrow really fast, but very efficiently in that kind of manipulative way. And it, it, as we know from the last, like, 15 years over there, right? It changes life. Mm-hmm. So uh, The Social Dilemma mm-hmm. is a movie, I believe, on Netflix or something. And one of the discussions that they have here, just picking up on this idea that we don't know where the technology is going, is the thumbs up, mm-hmm. is the affirmation or the like. And that took on a profound life of its own. And where I want to go with that is I've been, I'm studying psychology recently and reading some of the literature. The damage this has done to both sexes, but in particular to girls, is massive. Jonathan Haidt presented to the Senate. I, I don't know if you guys listen. Jonathan yeah, Haidt. Haidt pre- yeah. yeah. Jonathan Haidt presented to the Senate. And in 2010, there was a massive spike, particularly among young girls, in terms of only two mental um, issues, depression and uh, anxiety, and which along with which comes suicidal ideation and actual suicide. Um, it's interesting. They didn't know. but And the reason I talk about the like is because the need for social affirmation 
is huge. And when you see other people who are more beautiful than you and whom you, your life doesn't compare with, it can be very depleting of the self. Yeah. And you feel like you're connected without actually being connected to people. Just to continue with that a bit, and I used to get on the case of my students about this, I realized at one point that many of my more intelligent and self-reflective students were actually adopting a third-person perspective on themselves. Mm-hmm. That what had happened is that, the like for me, what's basic is, you know, you have a kind of first-person perspective on the world. This is what God gives us. I mean, we need to break out of that. There are dangers in it. But, but looking for affirmation, if you think about social media, when you are presenting yourself, you're presenting yourself, you become a, a sort of theater in which you're imagining the response you're going to get, and you start to create this persona. And that destroys or at least complicates the sense of self or the sense of developing a first. Anyway, it's a very curious phenomenon. I discovered this in that's from a few of my students. Yeah, uh, and that's... Yeah. Greg, yeah. In, yeah. in my experience, so a little bit of background, I do an awful lot of work with law enforcement and okay. with school administrators and officials on utilizing the information that's available through social media to better enact safety plans and intervention plans within schools and countries with the ultimate hope of ending all school violence. So currently we're sitting on the heels of uh, a mass yeah. shooting event yes. in Uvalde yeah. at Robb Elementary School. And as detestable as that act was and the impacts that will be felt for so long, what we have learned over the past 20 years in this field are a couple of really important critical things to think about is the way people use technology or specifically the software that technology affords. So you can see I'm I'm creating that taxonomy there is profoundly people only post things they're thinking about. That seems really simple, but it's absolutely crucial in understanding how the technology is shaping our experience of reality. So when we see somebody post that dinner plate <laughs> on Facebook, we know that they're thinking about that dinner plate, but more importantly, and along Ed's psychological re- mm-hmm. references, they're doing so or they're motivated to gain more of one of their, let's say, five basic needs if we pair it William Glasser. And that is the need for safety, the need to belong or be accepted or loved, for power, for fun, or freedom. And so we see through people's social media histories, uh, they construct something of a baseline where we understand their way of thinking. MIT, for example, Mm. if you like or comment on 31 to 33 things on Twitter, they have an algorithm where they know what you're likely to be thinking next, and they can do so with more accuracy than your significant other of 20 years. <laughs> so there's, there's an awful lot going on here, and I think the reason I'm saying this is because technology in, in terms of the echo chamber that we hear about or the likes on Facebook, which elicit the dopamine cycle, mm. it's exactly the same effect. Getting that like is the same effect as walking into a casino. Getting a hit. And yeah. gambling away. It, it turns on all the bright lights in your brain. Speaking of which, they've, there's a tremendous amount of research goes into those uh, gambling machines. Uh, they know exactly when to reward people. They, they watch patterns. It's driven by data. It, some of the worst machines in the world are those things. Mm. And yeah. our social media is designed after exactly. that. Exactly. Purposefully. Yeah. Yeah. But so the real 
question becomes, how do we use it well? How do we use these technologies or, or how can we use the information available? And then more specifically for this group, I think, what is the church's response and what is our role in helping people better understand the effect? Because the truth is we don't spend a lot of time talking about it. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to think about this from the perspective of the church. And based on what we've all said here, there's two things that come to mind initially. One is well, live streaming, as church, so many churches moved to over COVID or had already been doing prior to that. And as somebody who had a child during COVID and had a child baptism during COVID, I appreciated live stream in that I had friends and family who would normally attend a baptism but couldn't. Um, but they could do it that way. But I've also seen the other side of it where it seems to allow a sin of sloth, where many people don't really care to attend Sunday gathered worship anymore because they can just watch online. And then beyond that, there's also the element of this this like kind of idea that churches are now in competition with each other in a new space where it's the churches with the higher production teams or the better mm-hmm. tech volunteers, the larger budgets, mm-hmm. you know, seem to attract more viewers. And then you're going, oh, how do we get more viewers? And I remember even having some of these conversations about how do you get your views up on your YouTube channel as a church, right? Because you can't, you can't call your member who's not attended in three weeks and say, hey, where have you been? Because you don't know. So, and not, just, not even the great preaching increases <laughs> but yeah it's just it's just some, some ideas about how do how does this actually affect the nature of the church and what how do churches ought to, how how churches how should churches respond in this kind of technological world Thanks. go ahead Stephen. i'm actually going to pass this over thanks to for that curtis over okay, to so yeah yeah i just wanted that's exactly where we should linger for a bit and i want to mm-hmm. tie that back Thank to you. um uh, ivan's f- uh, comment about transhumanism and so on so the reason the reason that transhumanism flourishes, or that these people, you know, have uh, one of one of the reasons is money, um, but the other is this this disembodied vision. Like you need to you need exactly. to um, digitize us. You need to be able to disembody us. You need to be able to capture the essence of who we are in a digital format in order to um, fulfill a transhumanist dream of mind uploading of you know uh, putting ourselves into various kind of synthetically made bodies. It's a thoroughly gnostic disembodied kind of a a sense of being. Um, now, I haven't mentioned this uh, government, this policy webpage, which we should, um, if we can, put on our on this podcast um, thing. From it's it's important for people to see this, which speaks about um, biodigital convergence. So the life becomes the raw material for our digitization, or at least merging life and the biology, the bios to to technology, and they're creating. And they, they're not shy about this, creating a new forms of nature, new forms of human nature. Um, and they will be, I mean, uh, they will be disembodied. They will be bizarre. They will be, if that if it ever comes off, it will not be human. So it's, it's thoroughly reductionist in order to catapult ourselves into a new kind of form of being, in order to get rid of suffering, uh, get rid of all the kind of pesky things that this, this flesh bag, you know, uh, with all its odors. And <laughs> that sounds very Lutheran. <laughs> Um, imposes on us, right? But I mean, the whole point is that God did not become a digital life form in order to, you know, change our minds, but became a human being. There was no virtual incarnation. It was a real one. And so we need to, I want us to think about this. Now we have pastors here, a teacher of technology here. So so what does this mean, online streaming? Um, Online this, online that. 
uh, online baptisms, online. So can we can we talk about that a little bit? Like, it, so should we even have? I yeah. Let's let's I linger here for a question. Stephen, go for I'm it. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it to the pastors, uh, but I would say that what is the role that the body plays in worship? I'm gonna keep it pretty simple. And then I would, and then my rejoinder to that, or my question back is, what body are you talking about? I'm talking about the real, enfleshed, incarnate. So the, the human body. body, but then of human course body. you have the body of Christ who yes. eats the body what of role? Christ. Exactly. So well, the what, whole the venture body. is irreducibly bodily, as far as I am concerned. But I wanted to make a theological point first of all, and that is that there's a broad tradition in Scripture that suggests that you become like the gods that you worship. So, for example, from Psalm 115, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So, my question about technology is say we're going we're digitized we're becoming digitized civilization and we're becoming digitized humans where do we think this de-emphasis on the nature of the body is coming from well if we're worshiping some of our technologies which i do believe we are um, some of this is producing a generation who does not see the importance of the human body and so your biological sex becomes negotiable um, what truly defines you is your inward felt sense. So I think that would just be a theological sense is perhaps some of our some of what's going on with humanity is revealing our idolization of certain technologies. I, I see that exact thing in my visitation with youth and young adults in that it's where do you feel close to God is where you where your church is. Right, and I think I, I heard these testimonies out of COVID. Is oh, we feel, you know, in community with God when we're walking together on Sunday mornings, right, or when we're with our family together on Sunday afternoons, and it completely displaces the actual gathered church. And I, th- I think Ivan's got some more to say on that, but it get, displaces the gathered church with this. I, I feel, therefore, I believe <laughs> is what is what it's kind of reasoning. <clears throat> yeah. So in thinking through this, um, especially um, the use of technology to live stream church services and so forth, and the fact that after the, the one of the most recent surveys that was done was as a result of the church being uh, prohibited from meeting mm-hmm. and then having to um, go to streaming, um, 30, 30, uh, approximate 30% drop in, um, in live attendance now um, post, uh, post the end of that uh, mandate. So given that, uh, and, and, uh, and then added to that was the fact that so many people were appreciative of this technology that we could, we could live stream the services and meet and so forth, and what a wonderful thing it was. I'd just like to offer a couple of comments basically on the meaning of the word uh, church as it is uh, in the New Testament. So probably the best thing for me to do in, in order to keep on track here is just read a few comments that I wrote and, um, and just go from there. <clears throat> And so I begin here. I wonder how many are seriously taking what, the, what being the church is according to the New Testament. Or to put it simply, 
the, according to the New Testament, anyway, we cannot be the church unless we are physically present with each other. This may sound crazy, and we must begin, as usual, with definitions. The word church, or as the Greek would say, ecclesia, is an event. It's a, it's a dynamic. It's a happening that only occurs when the people of God are physically gathered together. Unless that physical gathering takes place, there is no church, as far as, to, as, far as the New Testament is concerned. So, for example, when Paul writes at the beginning of his letters to the church of X, or the, to the church at X, Corinth, or whatever, he means the group that has physically gathered at Corinth, or Philippi, or wherever, at a particular time, at which time his letter is going to be read aloud to them. He is not addressing scattered Christians all over the city as they go about their daily business. They are not the church until they physically come together in one place at one time. Similarly, when in the Revelation, Christ addressed the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor with the words to the angel of the church in Pergamum or Philadelphia or wherever, by church, he meant that moment when the Christians at Pergamum or Ephesus or wherever gathered physically. This is the clear and dominant use of the New Testament word ecclesia. We, of course, use the word more loosely to refer to an organization or group even when it is not gathered, such as you know, the Anglican Church or the Presbyterian Church. But the New Testament would not recognize that use of the word church. Neither does the New Testament mean the word in a metaphorical or abstract sense. Ecclesia refers to a specific physical object, a physically gathered people. And so the critical issue is this. Can ecclesia be given a metaphorical or symbolic meaning? Can we say that what happens on Zoom symbolizes the church? Or must it always only be taken in a concrete sense, the word ecclesia, a literal physical gathering in our bodies in the same place at the same time? The New Testament evidence is overwhelming that ecclesia can only be taken literally, never metaphorically. Thus, whatever we want to call Sunday morning gatherings on Zoom, they are most emphatically not church. And we should never use the word church to describe what we do on Zoom. It teaches people the wrong view of what the church is. It is true that Paul in Colossians 3.1 extends the use of ecclesia beyond the local gathering to the heavenly gathering. But again, it is not metaphorical or symbolic, as in the universal church, which is a concept foreign to the New Testament. Paul extends the word to the heavenly assembly of all the saints because, in his view, they are actually gathered in the heavenlies. In fact, to Paul, the physical gathering is a reflection of that real heavenly gathering that is taking place in the heavenlies. So, whenever we are banned from physically gathering, we are actually being banned from being the church. Mm -hmm. And that is no small thing. Christians cannot be okay with this because if we are banned from church, then we are also banned from everything that the New Testament says happens exclusively in, by, and through the church. And for a list of this, I would, I would um, recommend the book by Robert Banks called Paul's Idea of Community. And in the chapter 8 of that book, which is a marvelous book, uh, he will explain all the things that happen in Ecclesia. So, 
one of the main reasons of that is um, so that we can have oikodome, this um, this edification, this mutual upbuilding, which cannot happen on a Zoom meeting. So, to end, are we uh, are we being persecuted when we are being banned from physically gathering? Well, it depends on your understanding of the word ecclesia. I'll leave it at that. That's excellent. Can I just ask a question in response to it? So for those listeners who may be with us right now who are homebound, they're um, shut in, they're sick, and they can't attend the ecclesia, how, how are they to understand their participation in the body of Christ? Are you asking me? Yeah. Yes. I think uh, I, I think in, a, in in that in that case where you're physically unable to be there, this is the second best thing. Okay. But it is less than the ideal. Okay, okay. Because because now I want to build on your argument as well, because um, just just taking the Gospel of John for example, uh, those who are familiar with John know that he's really interested in a temple theology. Um, John was probably written, almost certainly written, after the destruction of the physical temple in A.D. 70. The temple, of course, was understood by Jews of the day, and of course this is backed by the texts that talk about the temple, to be the place where God was physically present on earth. It's the axis mundi, it's the center of the earth where God is truly present. And um, after the destruction of the temple, the question is, well, where now do we go in order to be in the presence of God? So John begins, John 1.14, the Word becomes flesh and makes his dwelling among us. The Word there is, it can mean tabernacled. He tabernacles in our midst. Jesus is the walking and talking glory, which is to say presence of God. Okay, great. So in John chapter 2, Jesus the Spirit of God descends on Jesus as a dove. You remember this. The same word is used, and only in John, when Jesus cleansed the temple, he doesn't only send out the money changers and others with a whip and some animals, but also he drives out the doves. Those who are selling doves or pigeons, he says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? It's very interesting. It is the Jesus drives the Spirit of God out of the temple, um, the disciples in John's gospel are conceptualized and portrayed as the place where God will be present on earth after his ascension into heaven, which is why after the resurrection of Jesus, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit of God. It's the re-insufflation or the re-breathing into the nostrils of the new Adam, the new presence of God, so that they can be the glory of God on earth, i.e. the presence. Okay, bring it back to the church. Why do we need to gather together? Because the place where we go to meet with God is actually fellow believers in whom the Spirit of God is dwelling. So if you want to go and be with God, you must be physically in the presence of other believers. Yes, a certain degree of this can be mediated online, but as we who are together know, you cannot mediate um, uh, the presence in the same way on a screen as you can in person. So this is, this is just to substantiate your argument. We must not give up meeting together um, because part of the way that we encourage each other is by our very presence. I mean, what pastors do predominantly in their pastoral care is exercise a ministry of presence. It's a priestly function. You go as one 
who represents, represents the presence of God to people. And you do so in a special way because of the communities um, calling you for that purpose. And uh, go ahead. I was going to say, Stephen. in terms of shut-ins, mm-hmm. in our church, if you want to take communion or participate in the Eucharist, the priest would go to the shut-ins. So it's actually going to be a physical priest going to someone and and being with them. So mm-hmm. yeah, and as you That's say great. this, or as as we have this conversation, I'm struck by the idea that when somebody comes into your presence and they give you a hug, when you're upset, when you're sad, it's so frequently the truth that that hug says more than multiple paragraphs or pages could ever convey. Mm-hmm. When we look at communication media. It's all about the word, what's being spoken. Mm. And it's our mm. way of interpreting those media, and, and this is important, I think, is something that we've all learned how to do over years, decades, and it has, our idea of that media is informed by the idea of entertainment. And that word is something, if you break it apart like a Sesame Street <laughs> show, enter, entertain. We have something that brings you in and then contains. Huh. And Never so when we that. view our church services in this manner, it changes the way we understand it and interpret because, and I could admit this for myself, I've gone to a few YouTube church services where I've watched and done my dishes. And right, so it's, it's this uh, half or haphazard. Sounds attention. like confessional time. Perhaps. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud. But so anyways, the the medium does change the way that we interpret. Yeah, and no, so I'm, I think, and I wonder, Ivan, to your um, uh, words earlier, would it be something that our churches should work on communicating with folks to have them reflect on... How does it change their experience? And even for those people who are shut in, what are the mechanisms we have to invite others into that community? So I think, I think we've established that physical church is important mm. and that you have to be together. But if, we could, if I could just throw the question into the, into the middle here, what happens if when you gather together, people get sick and maybe could die? Right, that's that's what we were wrestling with the last two years. Right, I, th- I I would think that most churchgoers, on a conceptual level, believed that you had that going to physical church was important. That's why they did it. But yet, as soon as there was an element of fear thrown into the mix, we we abandon it. So how do you, how do you overcome that? Is is that is that worth the risk? What is it? I'll tell the story of the Amish. I remember early in 2020. I think it was May. It was by the time that the shutdowns were all happening. This, uh, I think she was a legacy media interviewer, went to an Amish community and talked to the elder. And uh, she said, well, what are you doing about this? And he said, well, we got together as a community and we decided that we weren't going to change anything. We knew that people were going to die. And the people said, fine, they would rather die than lose their communion. They took communion exactly the same way. They knew some had COVID. They just took communion right down the thing. Some died and by the way, they had herd immunity within about two months. Oh, yeah. But uh, at least with that particular thing. But they decided that 
that it was a matter of priorities, that for them to be together as a Christian community, to take communion together, to worship together, was far more important mm. than any cost. I mean, if Christians have not overcome the fear of death, now, that's not the real problem. The problem isn't getting sick. The problem is, it's not Christians. I mean, I think that the proper argument is, what are Christians' responsibility towards others who may get sick as a result of Christians contracting that to me is the tougher question, but I. But anyway, that's just a thought. I see yeah, and for Christians, I think it also comes down to a question of faith and trust. Mm-hmm. Where do we place the faith? Where do we place the trust? Is it in the science or the distance or hmm. uh, however we want to construe that aspect, or do we put our faith in in the Lord? The um, <clears throat> the gathering together of the church in the um, New Testament signified in the word ecclesia, is just one half of the equation. The other half is given by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, and that is when you gather together and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ mm. is mm. present. Uh, that is the critical thing. You gather, you gather together, and when you gather together, the power of Christ comes powerfully in that place and is manifested. Uh, in the early church, nobody... If you were to if you were to use the language uh, going to church or uh, I, I went to church, they would not understand what you were talking about. You didn't go to church. Yeah, yeah. That kind of idea only comes up when you have church as a building. Um, they gathered in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they did, the power of Christ was present, and so you trust that power to mitigate whatever dangers there are available there. And um, it is true, some uh, will die, uh, possibly, but um, the fear of death cannot keep us from, mm-hmm. from meeting. I mean, the early church, when they met, they were, constant, they, were, they were constantly under risk of being discovered and perhaps persecuted uh, because these gatherings were, were banned. So some, some are going to see uh, this conversation as very cavalier on our part, like um, that we would willingly put people in danger of death it wouldn't some of the rejoinder be well yes but god says to worship him with all of our minds too and so if we know that there are precautions which can preserve people's physical health then we should take those precautions within reason so and i think the the thing for me is within reason and then it becomes what's the threshold for making these sorts of determinations because i think were there truly to be a virus which 90% of the population is dropping dead like flies then I think it would be incumbent upon us in the love of Christ to um, to do what we could in order that 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 it wouldn't spread through through the church. Uh, that's true, but I think the other point also to to take into account is the people that are going to gather there are going to gather willingly, mm-hmm. uh, uh, freely, with the whole knowledge of what the risk is. Okay. We are not the, exactly. the church is a voluntary association of uh, believers. We are not forcing anybody to attend. So those who are fearful, those who do not want to, stay home. And those who come, come freely and fully uh, with the knowledge of risk, and they take that risk. They are willing to take that risk for the sake of gathering. Yeah, I just want to throw in, um, truth has a lot to do with this, right? So, I mean, if I'm the one to say it, I'm going to say it. Like There just wasn't the killer disease. Right, I mean, this has now become abundantly clear. So the sermon has to do with it. So in this case, 
we didn't have to make that choice. I just want to say that. I mean, there was a choice of a, of a virus that, that went around, an outbreak for sure, but we all know that the uh, stratification of it in terms of ages um, hit, hit the oldest possible age bracket um, and so on. Not that those people are not valuable, obviously, but we would have had that with any other of that kind of a disease outbreak, which we've had before with influenza and so on. Um, and we never did any of this kind of stuff. Um, and the other, um, the other point is, yeah, it is, it is the Christians who have to be of one mind on this. And the problem with all of this is what the Christian churches allowed themselves to be uh, captured by this irrational fear that our governments should have curtailed and should have counteracted once the knowledge of what this thing actually was came in, but they didn't. Um, so my, my example still that I, I think I named once in our podcast was uh, in early Rome there was an endemic uh, raging through uh, the city and it was the Christians who, well knowing that they would be facing death like everybody else, were the ones that stayed and, and uh, helped the sick and healed the sick, um, which as the sociologist who looked at this, Rodney Stark claims, probably gave them herd immunity earlier at a cost, which mm. probably made them look invulnerable to the disease after a while. Ah. Um, but that's another point. But the point is that they were of one mind voluntarily to say, we don't care about dying, we care about the other. Mm-hmm. More than our own death. And I did not see that in the churches during COVID. Mm. So, so that leads to the next point. If it's going to be the the, uh, the the role of Christians, the role that Christians play in the greater society, that means that the church leaders need to have a a clear vision of what they bring to the world. And it seems to me that that's what's lacking amongst a lot of the church leaders. They do not understand the vital role that Christians meeting together, the role that that plays for the society as a whole for the, the, the good that that brings. And I think that, so I would say it's not the church attendees who need to be schooled. It's probably church leaders need to have a better understanding of, I think, ecclesiology and its function within the society. So I, th- I just want to reference um, two of our previous podcasts, or three of them, are Fear in Perspective and Truth with um, Dr. Bruce Walkey. Go back and listen to those if you haven't, because some of what we've just discussed will be there. But I think as we round out the hour here, maybe to close it off, as we have pastors and seminary professors and other kind of people who teach the young minds, what would you... Um, what, what, how would you encourage pastors and church leaders in this? Because I think as we've recognized some of the some of the fault or some of the, the concern lay upon church leaders. So how would you encourage pastors to preach or your seminarians to, to engage in this as maybe a closing thought? Yeah, I'll, I'll start and I'll take the hat of a, of a theologian. Um, I think it is to, to go back into the tradition, I mean, both the scriptures, but also interpretation of it, especially by the early church, and for pastors to recognize the importance of the Incarnation. I think they mm-hmm. need to focus on that and what the Incarnation means for the Lord's table, communion mm-hmm. for what they used to call the Eucharist. Um, and the literature I would, I would suggest is to read through the Eucharistic passages in the Scriptures and then go to an early church interpreter like Irenaeus and read him on the Eucharist. You will see that here is a theologian who thinks incarnationally to such an extent 
they will reference things like uh, that Christ reconciled the world to himself, or God reconciled the world to himself in Christ through Christ's flesh. And, and so into the embodied flesh is the passage in, in Corinthians. Um, and so that this renewal of creation in the incarnation is what we celebrate at the Lord's table when we take the elements. I mean, it, what opens up there is not just a memorial pity party for the Lord and his, our, you know, uh, that he saved us from our sins, but the actual vista panoramic view of the new creation in which we are drawn when we take the elements, um, that God did all of this in the flesh in order to renew creation. And how can you, how can you digitize this and put this on mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, online? Is just beyond me. Because as you participate in the, take the elements, the bread and the wine, you are feeding in a real sense on the on the renewed creation through Christ. Right? It's a mystery. But it surely is more than simply an inner spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. It is somehow ontologically true, and you cannot replicate that online. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that's my final comment. I have nothing to add to that. That's perfect. <laughs> uh, I'll keep it really simple. What I would implore pastors and leaders to talk about with, in particular, youth is to help them recognize how in particular, digital technology today is competing for their time and their attention to have influence over them. Our youth and many of our adults don't recognize just how pervasive the technology is, constantly calling for our attention, and I would say at the cost of engaging in community, Mm -hmm. in iglesia, in being with one another. And that would be my summary. What I would say is um, uh, what somebody in the past said. No person has a right to be uh, in the church teaching and leading who does not thoroughly understand the world. And I know pastors tend to compartmentalize and see that their their work is primarily in the church and in the Bible and so forth. But if you are not aware, and this goes right into what you're saying, Greg, aware of what is happening in the world, you haven't heard uh, Yuval Noah Hariri talk about how we are going to be able to digitize human beings and then be able to hack them so that we can program them to do whatnot. You have no right in the pulpit because you have nothing to offer the people in terms of how God is... um, their savior from all of these false views. So I would encourage them to learn, to pay attention to, and to study what is happening outside uh, of the four walls of the church, and then to ask the question, how does the uh, scriptures address those issues so that I can address them with my congregation? I suppose my encouragement to pastors uh, with reference to the discussion that we had today would be to be apprised and prepared to speak about the twin dangers of technology as I opened up this podcast with. And that is that um, they can begin to take the place of God. We can use technology as a way of, a technique for blocking God out of our lives and running away from God. 
And then, as we see in the Exodus story as well, technology will give us the power to bring certain things into the world that we cannot then undo the consequences of. And so we need great wisdom and great prayerfulness as we use the gifts that God has given us in order to ensure that they remain gifts. And um, that's about it. So thanks, everybody, for joining us on this podcast. Thank you all uh, who participated here. Grateful for everyone. And uh, to our listeners, we pray that the Lord would bless you and keep you. Until next time.